Now in my life, the thing I care about is, am I doing something I like with the people I like in the place that I like? As long as those things are true, I'm in pretty good shape. Something can be fun, but also painful, I think, right? So those things are not opposites. And the reason why I think it was fun was, it just seemed like a grand adventure. And my plan for the year was kill all the momentum, which is like, sounds like a horrible career advice thing, but my plan was kill all the momentum. Get away from people who think about me this way. Get away from all of the like momentum of that. And I actually made a rule, I didn't answer emails. In between every startup, I will have some existential crisis where I'm like, is this what I wanna do? Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Today, I'm speaking with Su Ken Oi. Su Ken is the co-founder and managing partner at Iterative, a 12-week Y Combinator-style startup accelerator focused on Southeast Asia. Before Iterative, he co-founded and exited his startup, Decide.com, to eBay, yes, that eBay, was VP of product at Weave, which was acquired by Lunch Club, and was also chief product officer at Workmate. Find out more about who Suken really is and get a look behind how these startups actually started, the times he struggled as a founder, and what it actually feels like after exiting a company, finding yourself again, and making his way back to Southeast Asia. Hey, Suken, so nice to speak with you today. Thanks for having me. I really wanted to speak to you again after your icebreakers. You were one of the first people that popped into my mind when I thought, okay, I have to start a podcast now and interview a couple of people. And I have never spoke to you in person. And I feel like this is my sort of opportunity to get to know you better. And I think a lot of people have spoken about you and Iterative has been getting a lot more popular recently. But I wanted to hear more about, you know, how did you get started? Like, what was your childhood like? Yeah, and I'll kind of give the maybe brief overview for people who don't know, and then let me know if there's specific parts you want to get into. Yeah, sure. Um, I was born in Penang in Malaysia, which I think people are sometimes surprised of because of how I sound. Um, so I was born in Penang. I lived there until I was about four, and then my family moved to the U.S. As the story goes, my parents only moved to the U.S. under one condition, that we would spend summers in Malaysia, in Penang. So I would go to school in the U.S. for nine months, and then every summer break, I would live in Malaysia with my grandmother. And I think my parents were really big on like not forgetting where you come from and family and all that stuff. And we were the only people in, only people in my family in the U.S. for most of our childhood and stuff. And so I think it was really important for them. So kind of did this back and forth thing. And then even though I lived in the U.S., I think I went to like 10 different schools before I was 10 or something like this. We used to move every like nine months. Um, so it was a lot of like back and forth between the U.S. and Malaysia and then a lot of moving within the U.S. itself. And I don't know how that kind of has impacted me, but I like to think that it must have at some point, right? Just this experience of constantly moving around and new situations and that kind of thing. So yeah, it was an interesting way to grow up. I think you don't know that it's different when you're a kid because you just assume everybody's like that. So it wasn't until I was older, I found out like people didn't move around that much and they didn't kind of do this back and forth thing. Yeah. What is that back and forth like for you? Like you probably did that back and forth starting when you were about six years old, right? And until around 18? Four. Four. Four to 18. Four until 18. Did you look forward to coming back to Penang? <laughs> 
You know, it wasn't even something that I like looked forward to or like dreaded. We didn't have a choice. <laughs> you know, it was like my parents were like, get on the plane and you like got on the plane. Right. So I didn't really have a choice. So I didn't kind of like look forward to it or not. I don't have kind of much memories of that. I definitely look forward to the food. It was like counting down, like getting back to Penang and like eating the food. So that was definitely a thing. But, you know, it was interesting. Like my friends were all American and they all have the like American summer breaks where they like go to summer camp and they do all this stuff. And like, I just never experienced that. I just was always in Malaysia. And so I never spent any summers with my friends. In hindsight, I think it was really important for us to do that. Something I would want to do with my kids. And the reason why is because I think it gave us a lot of perspective. You know, we grew up in the suburbs in the US and we had a big house and we had, you know, all these kind of like stuff. And then when we went to Penang and lived with my grandmother, it was like, traditional kind of like Chinese home, at least where everybody lived in the same house. And so my brother, mom, and I shared a room with my grandmother that was bunk beds. So my mother and brother slept on the top bunk. And then my grandma and I slept on the bottom bunk. And I think there was four or five families in the house and each family only had a room. And each of those rooms was smaller than my room in the US. And there was one bathroom and no air conditioning because the house wasn't actually enclosed. It was like a metal tin roof. So it was like just like a very different experience than what I was used to in the US. And maybe what I took away from that was the people that lived in that house were not less happy or less fulfilled than the people I knew in the US with big houses, right? So I think from a very young age, it was clear to me that like that stuff wasn't the stuff that kind of like really was going to matter. Um, you know, I have very fond memories of like that staying with my grandmother in that house with all my cousins running around and all that stuff. So like from a young age, did you feel like that sunk in or only around like after when you look back? I think it probably impacts you from the beginning. And so, but and it wasn't until I got older where I kind of like reflected back and thought about those things and how those things might've impacted me. But, you know, at the time you don't think about it, right? Yeah. And then like when you were in Penang, what were you doing apart from living in the house? Did you have like any activities? Because it's your version of summer camp. (laughs) No, we're we're doing nothing. Like, you know, some people be like, oh, you know, did you like go to like classes? Did you kind of do all this like enrichment stuff? Nothing. Like, it was just like, I was just at home and I didn't have any friends in Penang. I just like was with my cousins and I'm the second oldest of my family and my mom's side. And so I think I just like helped babysit like my younger cousins. So honestly, didn't do anything. There was just a lot of time to be bored. And you know, you like makeup games to play. And I think there was one computer in the house and we used to all have to take turns to like use the computer and stuff. But like, honestly, not nothing, nothing happened. It was like <laughs> real summer break where you're just like in this house with lots of people. And, you know, every day is kind of the same. You're just taking a break quite literally. <laughs> quite literally. Yeah. And sometimes when I think back about that, and I know, you know, parents these days are all very like, oh my gosh, every hour of a kid's time needs to kind of be spent doing something that will prepare them for the future. And yeah. I don't think my parents really kind of thought that way. They were just like, they need to be around family. That's it. Like, be around family. Here they are. I guess that was their way of preparing you for the future, maybe. <laughs> Either that or they were just like, I got my own stuff to do. You guys stay here. Like, don't hurt yourselves. <laughs> maybe sitting in Penang. Yeah. And outside of your, your life in Malaysia, what were the times that you spent in the US like as a kid? They were pretty typical up until I was a, a teenager, basically. When I became a teenager, I was an absolute nightmare. But up until then, it was pretty typical. I mean, I lived in the suburbs. I went to a pretty typical school, did typical American kind of like childhood stuff, right? So honestly, nothing that kind of like interesting or surprising when I, other than moving around a lot, but nothing kind of that interesting. And then I think when I got to be a teenager is when everything kind of like changed in some level. 
when you're moving around, right, you said that because of your dad's job, uh, you had to move around a lot. Mm-hmm. Was that difficult for you? Because I, I remember when I had to move around like different schools, I did that two times. I'd always have to find new friends and always have to mm-hmm. sort of navigate like what what do you do in this sort of ecosystem? Did you feel like that? Or because you've moved so many times, you're just like, okay, I'll just find my way. <laughs> you know, I I don't know. It started so young that it was just kind of like, Honestly, it just was kind of like, I just thought this is how life was. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. like you don't spend any time thinking about like, oh, what was it like for you to have to eat every day? It's like, I don't know. I just eat every day. Isn't that a thing that yeah. we got to do? Right. And that's how it felt to me. It was just moving was kind of part of it. And so, yeah, I mean, you just kind of like, I guess, kind of figure it out. I mean, now I feel like I'm very comfortable in whatever environment because, you know, you just kind of get used to that from a young age. And I think you build confidence in yourself that in whatever environment you can kind of like sort it out. And so. Even now when people talk about home, like their hometown and where they're from and, you know, like Singaporeans talk about being Singaporean and that kind of stuff. I don't know what they mean. I only intellectually get it from based on what people have told me, but like... The logical side. Yeah. Like, I I don't know what that feels like to me. Malaysia and Penang, honestly, is probably the closest thing to me that I feel like there's some kind of connection to a place. But even then, I feel like, not like some people who kind of like, you know, grew up in a certain place their whole life in that town and that stuff. I, I don't have that. So in a sense, you're always moving around and it always felt sort of natural. Like every other kid probably has this experience. You didn't really think about it. I didn't really think about it. And I guess if I'm thinking back on it too, it's like, I also lived in places where nobody else looked like me, right? And that never really hit you, right? I'm guessing. It never really hit me. I mean, I guess it kind of made sense to me on some level, like just super naive kid stuff, right? Where it's like, okay, I got on a plane, I landed in a place where people don't look like me. That makes sense. And then when I get on a plane and I go back to Malaysia, people do look like me. That makes sense, right? And so you just, yeah, you don't think about it much. I went to school in Puerto Rico for like nine months. I didn't even speak Spanish. So I, like, <laughs> like, I can't remember that time, but like, I mean, I didn't even understand what was happening in school. How old were you when you were in Puerto Rico? Gosh, I was maybe kind of like, Maybe five? Six or seven. Okay. Yeah, six or seven or something. Yeah. I don't really remember so much about the time either. (laughs) And by the way, my parents are kind of this way. So my parents lived in Barbados in the Caribbean for three years before they had me. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not like, it's not like I'm like unique in the family, right? I'm like, Mm -hmm. my family is like this. And so I think it all just felt very natural. Yeah. And like, wasn't a thing to talk about. It was just like, this is just how things are. This is how our family is. Yeah, this is how our family is. Uh-huh. And then you mentioned like everything changed when you were a teenager. What what happened then? There is a side of my personality that exists to this day where I'm just very rebellious. I have a hard time with people telling me what to do. And I have a hard time with authority and all of that stuff. And even to this, like, to this day, which can be kind of destructive if I'm being honest, which I can talk about, but you know, not always a great thing. But I think it first came on when I was a teenager. And when you're a teenager, it's like a new feeling and you kind of don't know how to deal with it, right? So this part of my personality started to develop. I didn't know what it was. And there's so many things happening when you're a teenager. And so I just rebelled against everything I possibly could. So anything my parents wanted me to do, I wasn't going to do it. And not only was I not going to do it, I was going to make it very clear that I wasn't going to do it. I like knew they wanted me to do it and I was not going to do it. So in like eighth grade, I would skip school a fair bit of the time, but specifically days where there were tests. So, you know, if you're, if you're like 
trying to be like actually smart you, if you, and you're going to skip school, you like just show up to the ones with the test, at least at the very least. Right. Yeah. I purposely skipped those. And the reason I purposely skipped those is I want to make it, make it very clear to everybody that I was doing this on purpose. I knew that there was a test that day, right? As like a big kind of just like, you know, a front to everybody. So I would skip those days. Turns out that it's like hard to do well in school when you kind of skip the test days. And so I remember the last day of eighth grade, I actually went to the teacher because I wasn't sure if I was going to pass. Yeah. And I asked her, I said, did I pass the eighth grade? And she said, she says, they would have talked to you a long time if you weren't, you barely passed. And I kind of had to like tell people to let you pass, but you passed. <laughs> so I think in the US, there's a four point grading system, right. right? I don't know. Where did you, where did you go to school? Was there a four point, four point system? We had a seven point grading system in the school I graduated from. Oh my gosh. Seven. Okay. So we have four point right in the US, right? Yeah. And if you get a 4.0, you know, it's A plus. I got a, oh, I got a 1.7. <laughs> okay. I got a 1.7, which is a D minus minus, I think, right? And F is obviously you fail. So I got a D minus minus. And I was doing all the normal stuff. Like, I mean, okay, I guess the statute of limitations has kind of left. But I was also very curious about boundaries and how far I could push them. I I shoplifted because I just thought it would be interesting. (laughs) Like, I just wanted to know what it felt like. So there was some of that. At some point in a teenager, the internet was, I'm like, older than I think much older than you, but the internet was coming about. And so that was very interesting. And so I got banned from AOL for hacking AOL. AOL. I committed a fair bit of credit card fraud that nobody figured out because basically back then the security was so bad on the internet that you could generate credit card numbers. And so I was generating credit card numbers and buying stuff as like a 12 year old on the internet. But, and not that I needed anything. It was just like, you just wanted to, you wanted to try. <laughs> There's these things. Yeah. I wanted to just be like, can I do it? And what is it like? What does it feel like? Right. And so any kind of like place that I could kind of push, I would like try those things. Right. And so, yeah, my childhood was very much, my teenagers was very much about that. And look, I have very classic, traditional kind of like Chinese, like Asian parents in that way. Yeah. And I'm the eldest son. Big burden to carry. <laughs> Big burden to carry. My father also skipped three grades in school. And yeah. And he got like a national scholarship, right? From like Malaysia. He got a Malaysian like national scholarship, which he turned down for a, a variety of reasons. But, you know, he was like, he worked, they worked really hard to get to like move us to the US where there's opportunity. I'm the eldest son. My father did extremely well in school. And so he thought, oh my gosh, like my eldest son in a place with so much opportunity is going to just like kill this place. He's going to kill this place, right? He'll be even better than me. <laughs> and I almost failed. Yeah. And so, I mean, there was so much kind of just like infighting at home. And I, I ran away from home a couple of times. I snuck out all like a bunch of times. Like I did all of that stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of period of just like that. Do you remember like the biggest, I guess, internal rebellion you had where like you really wanted to push it? Or did you feel like all of them were just like, semi-equal in a sense like there was no highlight of like which one you really wanted to rebel on i don't think any of them were that i don't think i was thinking that hard about any of it, it was just like if, I, if somebody told me to do do something i wasn't going to do it that was it right you just it was just a point of rebelling it's just a point of rebellion and maybe i can kind of talk a little about what changed for me halfway through high school yeah again four point scale halfway through high school i had a 2.4 right not very good that's 10th grade? 
that was ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, and 12th grade. So these are the key years before you go to university. Yeah. Right. And universities look at these grades in order to admit you in the US. And I had a 2.4, which basically means I'm not going to college. Yeah. Right. So I, by the halfway through high school, it looked like I was not going to go to college. Right. And by the way, I have an annoying little brother who is a fantastic student, like top of his class, like never sneaks out, never does anything. So like the opposite of you. <laughs> complete opposite, complete opposite. Right. And my parents tried everything. They grounded me. They threatened to send me back to Malaysia. They got me tutors. They did all that stuff. Right. I mean, I remember sometimes the tutor would come and I would literally run away from home. Right. How many times did you run away from home until like what point did you run away from home until the middle of high school as well? Yeah, maybe till the middle, maybe till the middle. And here's what changed everything. My parents sat me down one day and they said, okay, we have done everything as parents we're supposed to do. And we have given you every opportunity, more than every opportunity. We're no longer going to be responsible for this. You're going to choose your own life. If you don't want to go to college, don't go. I don't, we don't care anymore. We tried, right? We tried. And they basically were giving up. They were like, look, we tried. It's on you now. Do whatever you want. We don't care. Hang out with your friends all day if you want. We don't care. Yeah. And the moment that happened, I had nothing to rebel against anymore. Oh, because they didn't care. And the point of rebelling is because he wanted to see how much he could push them. And now there's nothing that can be pushed. There's nothing to push, right? And actually, this is a very pivotal moment in my life. And I think about it often. When they removed, my purpose in life at that point was to rebel. Yeah. And then when they removed my ability to rebel, then it was like, okay, now what? Why do I do the things that I do? And I think it's actually one of the best things to have happened to me early in my life was I actually had to sit down and think about what do I want? Right. Not what my parents want, not what somebody else wants. What do I want? Right. And as I thought about that, I was like, oh, I kind of want to go to college. <laughs> like I want to go to college. Like I want to be able to do these things. Right. Yeah. And so it's, it, I mean, to this day, if you look at my high school transcript, it was a two, I, first two years, 2.4, next two years, 4.0. And once they took that ability to rebel, I just was like, oh, I like, this is something I want. And if in order for me to do the thing that I want to do, I got to like go to school and do homework and all of that kind of stuff. Right. And so I think that is something that I often think maybe people don't have to like run up to until they're kind of like later in life. but. It's like, it was very useful to kind of have that experience early on in life. And I think throughout my life, and that's how I ended up getting an entrepreneurship is really kind of thinking about what do you, what do I want? Not what society wants, not what my parents want. Like, what do I want? So that was the big kind of like change for me. How did you go from a student who wasn't getting good grades at all to getting to 4.0? Was it difficult for you or when you decided to just go to college because it was, what it was, because it was what you really wanted it was actually not as hard as you thought? No, I think it, it was difficult. It was difficult in the sense that like, I had to learn how to be a good student. Like, look, I, I don't think any of my te teachers ever thought I was dumb. And so I think the trick was always, I mean, the rap, I mean, every teacher said the same thing is like, Sukan is smart, he just doesn't apply himself. Now, just because I decided I want to do good at do well in school doesn't mean I knew how to apply myself. I didn't. Being able to apply yourself is a skill that you need to learn. I didn't have that skill. I never tried before. Because you're rebelling the whole time. I mean, when you're a kid, you kind of like, you don't do anything, right? And then I've been rebelling the whole time since I was like, not a child anymore. And so I really had to learn how to turn it around. And I needed to do it fast, right? I, I mean, I wasted two years of school, right? Yeah, you had two years left. Or I got less two, years, two left. years Because you have to apply to the university, like one and a half, I guess. 
And I got to bring up the average because my average sucks. Okay. And then how did you do that? <laughs> and this is also something that's kind of helped me kind of throw my, I became very hardcore, like super, super hardcore about stuff. Right. So whereas I wouldn't study before, I remember kind of like, I mean, there'd be like math problems and it'd be like, cool, do one to a hundred, do even. I would wake up early, do all the even ones, then do all the odd ones, then do all the even ones again. That was just like a thing that I could like learned how to kind of develop was just like, okay, I need to work harder than everybody else because I got more more to like make up. The other thing I think was interesting and helpful to me too was I never thought of myself as smart. And to this day, I don't actually think of myself as like particularly smart or talented or anything like that. And I think it's because when I was young, I didn't do very well in school. And so people never thought of me as somebody that was going to be anything. Not that I'm anything now, but like I wasn't somebody people were like, oh, that guy is going to be, he's going to be someone someday, right? Yeah. And so the narrative I had about myself was, I'm not particularly smart. I'm not particularly talented. Okay, well, what are you going to, what can you do? And the only thing it seemed like I had agency over is like, cool, I can just be more hardcore than everybody else. Yeah. Like, that's how I'm going to like compensate for the fact that I'm not that smart and not that talented. And then, so you made up for the, I guess, the lost time and you pulled up the grades. Mm -hmm. But at the time, like, were you thinking about the future? Like, did you know what college you'd want to get into? What kind of career you want to get into? Or were you just focusing on, okay, I'm going to be hardcore and I hope I get into any college that's decent? <laughs> yeah, basically, I was like, I hope I get into like a decent four-year college. Yeah. Right. And no, I, I mean, career was so far away, right? I was like, you know, 17, 18 at the time. And I feel like I had bigger problems to solve, which was like, okay, I got to get into college first. I'm not thinking about like what I'm going to do after that. Yeah. And then after you get to college, what happened next? After I got to college, it was easier because I'd gone through that time. And so I kind of understood how school kind of like worked and how to do it and that kind of stuff. I mean, to be honest, the first year was just like kind of a blur because it was so much fun because I was like rebellious. And then I'd gone through this like hardcore periods and then you get to college and there's like no parents and it's like all these people and you're like, oh my gosh, it's the best. That's also when I became a professional video game player for a while. I traveled the US and played Counter-Strike somewhat professionally. And so how did you get into that? <laughs> um, okay. I played football, soccer in the US. I played football pretty competitively in growing up. So it used to be six days a week, like four hours a day kind of stuff. And so we used to travel around. Our team was sponsored by Nike. So I was not bad. And when I got to college and was playing video games, I just like made some friends with people who played video games. And I thought I was pretty good. And then I started playing somebody's friends who were much better than me. And I was very competitive. And I was just like, how come they're so much better than me? And then it turns out they were like professionals. And then I just started playing with them all the time because I wanted to be better. And then next thing I know, they're inviting me to tournaments and stuff. So for about a year, I would travel around to different parts of the US and like playing these video game tournaments, which were like fascinating because it was, I mean, pro gaming is such a big deal now, but this was 2003. 2004 and it was this weird subculture yeah i'm actually surprised it was a thing <laughs> in 2003 it, I mean, <laughs> it wasn't really right it was this like subculture you only heard about tournaments in irc you would like go to these hotels none of them were very nice they were like all the crappy ones you would never stay at and it'd be like the bottom ballroom and it would be like a hundred dudes let me be very clear it's like all dudes it's like a hundred dudes with their computers and just like playing video games for like two days straight right I really like subcultures and genres where it's just like a bunch of people that are really into something. And oftentimes, if it's not cool, it's even better because it's like all these people that do this thing that they love that nobody else thinks is cool kind of like gets meet each other. I just have very fond memories of like that time. 
Then what happened after you graduated from college and how did that bring you to founding your own startup? I think after college, you had one job. I had one job for about like a year. Yeah. yeah. When I was in college, this thing of like, people started kind of like talking about startups and that kind of stuff. And again, this was like 2005, right? 2000. So yeah. Startups were not as popular as they are now, but it was like this thing. It was like, some people are like, oh yeah, you know, there's like this startup thing. And people would kind of like say it in a way that is like, I'm not really sure what they mean, but like startups. Um, honestly, I didn't think much of it. It seems interesting, but I didn't think much of it. But I was spending all of my extra time building stuff on the internet. I don't know why. Just I was like compelled to build stuff on the internet. And I remember working at that first job. I stayed up all night because I lost track of time building something on the internet. And I was very curious what it was like to build something completely from scratch. Like back then there was no AWS. So I like set up the servers, installed the OS on the server, like installed the like web server on the server, like every bit, designed the website, coded the entire thing, set up the database. Literally, it was like, I want to know the entire process, do every last bit. And I stayed up all night doing it one day. So it's tougher than if you're trying to build things without no code. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, a little AWS, bit. Just a little bit. You don't have an API yeah. maybe at the time. I, I don't know. <laughs> no, there was no thing where you press a button and then there's like a server or something like that, right? This yeah. is like, I like email a guy, he gives me uh, something to like terminal into. And then basically you just start sitting at a terminal that's another computer and you're like, great, now enter the right commands so that you can <laughs> like install the right stuff. And then I woke up and then basically I stayed up all night. I had to get to work and it was an hour before I had to get to work. And I remember being so annoyed I had to go to work. Work was so annoying, right? It was like, I don't want to go. I don't care about what I do. People there don't seem to care about what they do. Like the whole thing just was like, it just seemed like a charade, right? It was like, we're all going through the motions. Nobody seems to care. Like, this is dumb. But, you know, we all still have to go to work, right? So, yeah. you know, went to work or whatever. And then, I was complaining to somebody and somebody was like, you should do a startup. And I was like, oh yeah, what is this startup thing? They're like, oh, it's basically what you're doing, but like you get to do it as a job. And I was like, oh, I, I, I can just do that thing that I like stayed up on that doing? Like that can be my thing? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, okay. And then what I tried to do is I like Googled startup on the internet. And I was like, what is this? And they're like, get co-founders. And I was like, get co-founders. Okay, get co-founders. So I messaged all my friends who I thought were smart and were like, do you want to do a startup? And nobody knew what it was. And so do you, have you ever heard the stories of Jack Ma who used to like invite people to his living room to see yeah. if they wanted to like start Alibaba with him? That was me. I'm like inviting my friends over and being like, cool. Now they're all here. I'm like, guys, this startup thing is going to be great. We should do a startup. And what ended up happening was they all said yes. And I'm like, great. Sunday afternoon, let's meet here and let's work on the startup. And I literally called it the startup because there was no name and we had no idea or anything. I was just like, let's work on the startup. So Sunday afternoon would come, I would go to the coffee shop. And then one after another, my friends would cancel on me. They wouldn't come because it was Sunday afternoon. They want to hang out with their friends. That was the first meeting, right? That was the second one. They all agreed they wanted to do the startup. But, you know, I think this is the first time I ever learned where people say they want to do a startup and then you actually got to spend your like weekends working on the startup and people don't want to spend their weekends working on a startup right yeah still happens to this day and this happened week after week you know the first week i was like okay no big deal maybe people are just be second week nobody shows up third week nobody shows up try to ask another group of friends don't show up and i remember just being so confused because i was so this was the highlight of my week all i wanted i could not wait until the sunday afternoon to work on the startup and it seemed like nobody else cared 
And then, you know, my brother, who we started the first company with, he's working at this company called Zillow. So Zillow is a publicly traded company in the US now. But my brother was probably one of the first 50 people there pre-launch, all this stuff. And so I keep complaining to my brother. I was like, hey, nobody wants to work on the startup thing with me, whatever. He comes back one day and he's like, hey, I got somebody that wants to pitch me a startup idea. And I was like, oh, <laughs> he's like, I asked him if you can come. And he said, yes. And I was like, great. I was like, okay, what is happening? He's like, oh, he's going to come to my, to my house this weekend. And like, you should come. I was like, okay, so I come. In walks Mr. Brian Ma, who is now my co-founder at Iterative, who's been my co-founder for the last like 18 years or something. In walks Brian. He has a hundred slide pitch deck and he's pitching us the startup idea, his startup idea that we should join. And it's a hundred slides long and it takes an hour. It's an hour long pitch, no questions. He just talks for an hour. And I try to be cool. I try to act like this has happened to me before, but like, <laughs> I have no idea. I'm just so excited that somebody's like pitching me a thing. So afterwards, I'm like, I'm like trying to ask questions, but like, I don't actually know. And afterwards, he was like, do you guys want to work with me on it? And I was like, of course, right? I was like, I mean, I've known you for about an hour and I haven't even like really had this conversation with you. But if you're asking me, I'm saying yes. And then my brother is like, yeah, sure. Why not? Like, that sounds fun. And he's like, okay, great. I have a younger brother who is an engineer. He's going to join us too. We were like, great. So literally how everybody talks about co-founders and you need to vet your co-founders, you need to get to know them and all that kind of stuff. We didn't out of it. It was just like four brothers. (laughs) It was just like... Two sets of brothers. And honestly, I was just excited that anybody else was pitching me because I've been stood up so many times, right? Yeah. So I was like, sure. And then I remember afterwards, I was like, hey, how do well do you know this Brian guy? And he's like, I don't know. We play a lot of Guitar Hero in the office and some ping pong, but that's about it. And I was like, nice. He plays Guitar Hero. Like, like that was good <laughs> enough to start a company with. And then Sunday rolls around. And, you know, like I asked him, I was like, hey, let's work on the startup on Sunday, just like I'd done everybody else. And so Sunday rolls around and we're meeting at my brother's house. And we're going to let's meet at uh, like 11, I think. Right. And I was like something like that. And I show up at my brother's house at 11 and Brian and his brother are already there. Computers out, headphones on. They're like there. And I'm like, am I late? Suhan? <laughs> and he's like, no, they came two hours early because they were excited. And I was like, these are my people. Yeah. Like, that's it. Like, I frankly don't care what we're doing. I don't care. I don't care. I finally found people who were like excited about a thing like I was excited about. That was it. I still now work with the same guy, uh, you know, I don't know, like, you know, I don't know, 15, 18 years later or whatever. That's how we started. First company came out of that. And then the second one, now iterative and all that. What were your first impressions of Brian when he was pitching that 100 slide pitch deck? If you remember them at all. (laughs) It was a very long time ago. I don't know if I remember a specific impression about Brian other than he seemed like somebody who was as excited as startups as I was and took it as seriously as me. And those were the only two things I really cared about at that time, right? I was like, maybe you understand this. It's like when you really care about something and you're working on something and you want to like spend all your time working on that thing, you just really want to find other people who also want to work on that thing and like want to do it like you want to do it. Yeah, they have the same feeling. They have the same feeling. I was ready to give up Anything I would need to give up in order to do this and to meet somebody who was kind of like that was just like, great. So I think that was the only thing that kind of stood out to me was like, they just seemed like people who wanted to do this thing like I wanted to do this thing. At the time when you were studying the startup, was it sort of like a subculture as well? Like how you described gaming? Totally. When we started that company, not only did I not know any other founders, my brother was the only person I knew that worked at a startup. 
So I didn't even know people that worked at a startup. I really didn't know what a startup was other than there was this word called startups. And that you're trying to build one. <laughs> uh, but again, honestly, I only cared about building one because I was doing this in my free time and it, somebody told me that I could do this as a job. Starting out, I didn't care very much to build companies. I didn't care about getting funding. I don't care about starting companies. I just wanted to build stuff. And it seemed like the only way I could build stuff full-time was you had to start this company. And the only way to keep the company going so I can build stuff is to raise money, money. and yeah. to like do all this stuff. So even to this day, like frankly, I, I don't particularly care about starting companies, raising funds and all that kind of stuff, other than the fact that they are ways for me to kind of like continue building stuff with the people that I like. Otherwise, I don't care, right? If that wasn't true, I wouldn't start companies. So the main point is really to keep building stuff, to keep doing what you like doing with the people you enjoy it with, and then everything else sort of a means to an end. Yeah, and maybe I'll kind of go a little bit further. I was saying this to somebody recently. Now in my life, the thing I care about is, am I doing something I like with the people I like in the place that I like? As long as those things are true, I'm in pretty good shape. And how is sort of starting the setup for you like? So you did it because you wanted to build, but then having to do it as a job, having to raise money, hire people, especially at the age you were starting the company, which I think you were 22 at the time. Mm -hmm. Brian was, I think, 20, by the way. Brian was 20 and his brother was still in college. I was the oldest at 20. You were the oldest. So the oldest brother again. <laughs> yeah. How was navigating that then? Because I feel like, you know, building something just because you enjoy it versus having to build very a different, company, yeah. raising money. Look, some of those points were very painful and stressful and all that kind of stuff. But it was always fun. Something can be fun, but also painful, I think. Yeah. Right. So those things are not opposites. And the reason why I think it was fun was it just seemed like a grand adventure. Like the whole thing just seemed like an adventure. When I kind of think back on my life a lot, <laughs> think back on my life like I'm at the end of my life or something. Um, <laughs> when I think back about it, I think that's kind of the stuff, that's what I care about is adventure is just very appealing to me. And that first startup was like such a grand adventure. It was like four young people who frankly had no idea what they were doing, were trying to do this thing that at the time seemed very outlandish and we didn't even really understand very well. And so... Even when we were building several dozen products that didn't go anywhere. And I mean, we had a couple products where we like built a product, didn't get a single sign up and then took it down from the internet. And I always used to like joke that like, you know, there's that old saying, it's like, you know, if a tree falls down in the woods and nobody's there to hear it, did like the tree actually kind of like, that's like me and some of the products we made. It's like, they went up on the internet and nobody signed up and we took it down. Did the product ever exist? Yeah, it wasn't even on the internet in the first place. Was it even on the internet? But it all just seemed like an adventure, right? Maybe we'll figure this out. Maybe we won't. I don't know. You know, and that just seemed like a lot of fun. And maybe I don't think it would have been that much of an adventure if I didn't like who I was working with at the time, but I really liked who I was working with. And it all seemed like an adventure to all of us. And so, you know, we're all kind of in this like thing together. And so, yeah, I mean, look, is fundraising fun? No, it's horrible. It's horrible. And by the way, for everybody out there, we've done it a lot now, still horrible. At no point is it like, fun and like, okay, like it's all horrible, right? But even then it was like, I mean, there'd be sometimes I'd be pitching investors and I'm like, I almost am just laughing to myself. You would say something like, you should give us $5 million to do this thing. And in my head, I'm like, <laughs> like, you really going to give us $5 billion? I have no idea what I'm doing, by the way. <laughs> you know what I mean? But here I am. You should give me $5 million to do this thing. So I don't know. It just seemed like a grand adventure we were on and we had a good time kind of like doing it. That's sort of like the four of you treating life in a sense, like like a video game. It's sort of like an adventure. You're all playing it together. Sometimes you don't really know what you're doing. 
As someone who plays video games, would you describe it like that? Kind of. I mean, the thing that I often think about, and I don't know if there's like anime fans out there, but I've been watching One Piece for a long time. And I feel like it almost is like starting a pirate crew where you're like, you're getting a small group of people together and you're kind of sailing out into the unknown and you're like just looking for adventure and you kind of have this crew and that's the only thing you've got, right? And that's just very appealing to me. And it always has been and it still is to this day. In the process of building your first set of Decide and in the second one, what were the hardest times? I think you mentioned before in another podcast that every founder has a point where, you know, they they really, really, really want to give up. What were oh, those points for you? <laughs> only one? I feel like there's like one every like other month. You could share like maybe the most significant one, but if there's no significant one, I think that's also an interesting. I mean, look, you know, you're a founder yourself. You know that this stuff kind of like comes up. There are the moments that happen when you're low and you don't say it out loud and you think it in your head and, you know, it's not something you admit to anybody or whatever, but it's there, right? And for me, for some whatever reason, those moments always happened when I was like taking a shower. I don't know if something about taking a shower is kind of like very meditative, but like that stuff would always hit me then. But there's a few times where this kind of like happens where, you know, you're like two weeks from running out of money or something like that. And God, it just would be so much easier to stop right? Just be easier to stop. And you have to kind of figure out some way to like not stop and all of this kind of stuff. There's burnout is very real. Oh, there was one time Brian and my brother and Ian, who's Brian's brother, they staged a founder intervention on me. And what it was, was I was running products. So I was actually by running product, I was the only product manager and only designer in about a 40 person company. And 80% of that company was engineers. And so I'm like trying to keep up with all these engineers. And the company basically ground to a halt because I couldn't like design stuff fast enough and make decisions and all this stuff. And I was getting burnt out. And they came to my desk and they're like, you got to come with us. And I was like, why? I'm like too busy to come with you. They're like, you got to come with us. Took me to a conference room. They closed the blinds and they were like, you need to hire people to like do your thing. I'm like, no, no, no. If I just like work harder, they're like, no, no, we don't even want you to work harder. Like the company is literally gridlocked because of you, right? And you already work very hard. Like, we're not trying to get you to work harder. We actually want you to work less, right? And also, you're kind of being nasty now because you're so stressed out all the time. And they, like, staged this whole intervention. And, like, each of them talked about how they were feeling about kind of, like, what was happening and all that kind of stuff. And then they forced me to take a vacation. And then they forced me to hire after that. And, you know, it's, like, at those points where I, like, sometimes I'm, like, oh, my gosh. I'm, like, thank goodness I have co-founders to kind of, like, pull me out of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But... Yeah, there's some pretty low points. I think what was interesting to me is like your first startup decide got acquired and then your second startup we've also got acquired. What were those experiences like for you? Oh. <laughs> I mean, it's um, not every, it's not like an everyday thing where every founder's first startup gets acquired, right? Especially in Yeah, that especially time. when you're kind of young, right? And you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. As you said. I mean, I still don't know what I'm doing, but yeah, especially then I didn't know what I was doing. Um, look, the process is hard. We negotiated for like a couple of months. We walked away from the table. There was a couple of times we thought the deal was dead. There's all that stuff that happens, right? And so I think that stuff is all there. I do remember the day that the deal was finalized and we announced it kind of like publicly. And because I was curious what it was going to feel like. You know, that's when you start companies and stuff, you try not to let yourself daydream too much about something like this happening, but it inevitably kind of like happens. And so here we are on the precipice of it happening. And like, I wonder what this feels like. Right. So when it was becoming public and it was going to be on the news, I was actually not with our team. I was actually on vacation. I was in New York for a wedding 
And nobody around me knew about it because it was supposed to be this press embargo, so I didn't tell anybody. So I'm sitting at this brunch place in New York in Manhattan and checking my phone all the time because I know this thing is going to happen. And I was like, I remember walking into the restaurant being like, oh man, this is where it's going to happen. So we sit down and we like order food or whatever. And it happens. And I show my friend, I was like, hey, check it out. And my friend just like goes crazy. She's like, oh my God, this is like, you know, whatever. She's like yelling in the restaurant. And I was like, oh my God, like chill, like sit down. Like, I don't want to have to like buy brunch for the entire restaurant or something like that. Right. And so she like makes me show everybody else at the table and everybody's really excited. And I buy brunch for kind of like everybody at the table and, you know, everybody's kind of excited. And then (laughs) that night we like go to the wedding venue and I'm staying at this hotel. And it's literally to this day, the worst hotel I've ever stayed in my life. It is run down. Nobody stayed in my room, in that room for like, I don't know, 20 years, smells like cigarettes everywhere. And, and I remember just laying in bed at the end of the day and being like, this is not how I thought I would spend the night after I've sold a company in the worst hotel of my life, like listening to these people next door. And my phone melted, by the way, I literally had to turn my phone off and my phone battery died because I got so many text messages from lots of people I'd never talked to in like 10 years or something. It melted because of the text? Yeah, that was because of the hotel, maybe. No, (laughs) yeah, I wish. But I probably got like 400 text messages that day from like anybody who I'd ever met, like at any point in my life. And so, you know, the phone went off. And then the interesting thing, and this is going to be anticlimactic for everybody here, that wears off after about a day or two. And it doesn't feel any different. Like you're still you, right? Is it like when you have a big funding announcement, you're like high on it for like two days and then you're like the same person with the same problems again? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, look, it's it's kind of like every big moment, everything that you kind of look forward to and you're like working towards or whatever. And then when it kind of happens, you think it's going to kind of like change your life and kind of like make you happy or something like that. And you just find out that it's like not you're still the same person as before. Maybe the thing that people are surprised when I tell them the story is they like, what does it feel like when it actually kind of happens? And the word that I always say is relieved. And I think founders don't think about this. When this kind of stuff happens, you just can't believe it actually worked. Right. Because I think when you're starting a company, you're like, oh my God, I got to do all these things. I got to keep this thing going. I got, you know, and every day is like, we can't die. I hope we don't die today. I hope we don't die next week. I hope we don't die. And I think the overwhelming feeling was relief. Like, I cannot believe we didn't die and we kind of like made it here. And I can finally kind of like exhale a little bit because it's almost like you're kind of holding your breath the entire time. It's like, you're like, oh my God, you know? Yeah. And I can finally kind of like exhale and be like, oh my God, the company did not die. And then was that the same for like the second time you got a card as well? Was it a kind of yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about the second company is the first company was like just a giant adventure of like I don't know how this is going to go. Let's like try this thing that none of us have ever done. Yeah. Obviously, for the second company, we kind of have actually seen this before, right? We've been founders yeah. for kind of like seven or seven years, and the second company was very much about oh, let's do this again. But now that we know more, let's like not make all the same mistakes we made the first time. Let's see what that's like. So we did all of that. And you got into a YC. Which is really hilarious. Which help you avoid more mistakes. Yeah. And like, I think, look, the first startup was in Seattle. And I always say that we moved to San Francisco as quickly as possible after that. Because if, you know, being in Seattle felt like being an actor and not living in LA. Yeah. Like, we got to get to the place. That batch was like, well, I think one of the last batches that like Paul Graham was still around and kind of like still act pretty active and all that stuff. So. It was just cool to have read about YC and read so many Paul Graham's thing, Paul Graham kind of like essays and then kind of like be in this program and kind of like, you know, work with like Paul Graham and stuff. 
So, and it kind of, that was like a new experience for us. But by the second acquisition, we kind of, I kind of expected what it was going to feel like, right? I, I was like, I know it's going to be this exhale. It's going to be kind of like this thing. And so, and it was, it was just like the same thing. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't like very different. Looking back at the second startup also, I feel like anytime you sort of had some measure of success to other people, which is like, you know, sort of like your first startup getting acquired by eBay. By the time you start your second startup, people probably think that you're going to succeed or make it even bigger than last time. I'm sure there was some sort of pressure there, maybe. Was there no, an totally. internal battle? Oh, 100%. I still feel it today. Okay. Imposter syndrome is very real. And you would think that having some success by some people's measures would kind of like help with that. It actually makes it worse in my case. I can imagine. <laughs> right? Like the first company, I mean, look, there's luck with all of this. Right. And I think to have started a company when you're like 22 and then sold it in your late 20s and stuff, people think you're like the golden child or something like, oh, my gosh, Sukan knows things that people don't know. And like he can like manufacture startups that like get acquired. And in my head, I'm like, I can't believe we pulled that off. Like, I cannot believe we pulled that off. And especially for after the acquisition for the next like six months and stuff, it was like I could not meet somebody without saying something to that. And it was all very congratulatory and whatever. But every time they said it, I was just like, no, you don't understand. I don't know if I can ever do that again. Right. I don't even know how it happened the first time, you know? Yeah. So starting the second company was like, they were like, oh, okay, so this is going to be you know, bigger than the first one. And I was like, I hope so. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I hope so. But I don't know. It could be worse. Right. I don't, I, yeah. I don't know. Um, and one thing that we were very cognizant of was, I think it's tempting for people who had success, success, I'm going to keep saying success in air quotes, because success can be defined in many different things. Um, they will become VCs, they'll do something else or whatever. And I think part of the reason why is you're like, perfect. When you're one for one, you're perfect, batting a 1000, right? You don't want to kind of like people to find out that you are not. And so I think a lot of times it's very easy to either go do something so that you can't ruin that record, which is maybe investing and like this other stuff, or you pick an idea that's safe. Yeah, something that's quote unquote easier. And maybe not as kind of like risky and kind of like maybe potentially not as big, but something safe, right? And I made a personal decision a long time ago that I didn't want to get older and increasingly do safer things, right? And so I had to actively fight against that because the draw is so strong. Like it's just like, Everyone thinks you're like somebody now. And so don't do something that will show them that you are not that thing because you don't actually think you're that thing. So it's sort of a challenge because there's this label or expectation other people have of you. And it's like, do I want to live up to that or do I want to stay true to sort of who I am? Yeah. And look, I'm not that. And this happens, look, this happens now, even in social settings, like in my life now, right? I mean, it's been 10 years since that acquisition, that company. And to this day, so many people still introduce me as like, oh, you should meet Sue Ken. He started this company that got bought by eBay. Literally, like, here's Sukan, this line, right? Does it get tiring getting introduced not as Sukan of Iterative, but Sukan previously acquired by eBay? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I don't even I don't even want to be introduced as Sukan from Iterative. Those things are not me. There are things that I do. Oh, do you mean you're introduced as that in social settings outside of work? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Like any kind of like social setting. I remember thinking, it was like, oh, man, is this going to be the defining thing in my life? Like 30 years from now, I'm going to be like, oh, this is Sukan from, you know, who sold this company to eBay or whatever. And it's like, that was 30 years ago. I've not done anything in the 30 years that like make people kind of like change that. Like, wow. Right. And by the way, it shows up in really funny things. When I used to use kind of like dating apps and stuff, my name is Sukan Ui. If you Google Sukan Ui, 
It's only just me. It's no other people with my name. And so on dating apps, when I would go like meet people for dates and stuff, a fair number of people would have Googled me, which is like totally normal, right? And the first thing that they see is that I sold the company to eBay. And so there's a couple of first dates from these dating apps. I would go down and I would literally sit down and I'd be like, hey, I'm Suken. And they'd be like, hi, I'm so, so-and-so. I heard you sold the company to eBay. Very first line. You'd rather right? just be, I'm Suken or Suken from Penang. <laughs> yeah, and I'd rather be that. And on top of that, then I'm also kind of just like, how has that changed how you think about me? Yeah. Right? It's sort of like being a celebrity in a sense, right? Like the, there's this other image of you, other labels maybe that people have. They know you for your career and not who you are. <laughs> yeah, and I agree with it in the definition that you said. But like, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not a celebrity. I'm not famous. I don't know any of those things. But like, yeah, you're kind of known for this like singular thing, right? And maybe you're getting that a little bit too. You're like Amanda from Backscoop. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> like there's like, really, there's nothing else about Amanda. It's just Amanda from Backscoop, you know? What are things about you that you wish people knew about you? Um, that I'm a giant nerd. What do you like the most? What do you nerd out about the most? Um, I guess two things. One is I love math in a way that is like, I almost think of it as like, okay, this is going to sound ridiculous. I think math is really romantic. In what way? Um, it's a very pure pursuit of knowledge. It's knowledge for knowledge's sake. So physics is like, okay, you're trying to kind of study the world around you and you, so that you can kind of be able to do things. But there's a lot of math that actually has no real world application yet. Right. That's true. It's just people who are curious and want to know. Like all those unsolved mathematical stuff that people try to solve regardless. Regardless. You're into that. Yeah, totally. Like there's no reason for them to solve those problems yet. Like it's not clear how that helps anybody. But it's just this embodiment of like human curiosity that they're going to dedicate their lives to solving this thing because it's like there. And I love the purity of it. And what I mean by that is when I was studying math in school, it was like me at a desk, piece of paper, pencil. That's it. No computer, no like equipment. It's just that. And it's just me and my brain grappling with the math. There's just like some purity there that I could lose myself in like hours and hours of like doing that. And so I still daydream about my retirement plan is I want to get a math PhD. And so I would love to go back to school and get a math PhD, which doesn't help me do anything, but sounds fun. And that good math, right? There are calculators and all now, but there are lots of complicated things that you can actually solve by hand, right? That people won't do anymore, but there are. Yeah, and actually, and I mean, don't get me started into it unless you want this whole podcast <laughs> to be about math. But I actually think that most math that people understand and did in school is not really, it is math, but it's not the math that really I kind of fall in love with. That is very mechanical. Add these fractions, do them 100 times. Very mechanical. Why does adding these fractions give this answer? So like, for example, why is the, why is pi r squared the, I don't know, area of a circle? You just take that to be fact because some math teacher told you about it, right? But why? Prove that that's true. Like nobody really learns the theory. And the real thought behind it. And that's the stuff that I kind of like fell in love with, right? Is just like, how do we know that these things are true? And what is truth? What does it mean for something to be true? Would you say you're sort of a mathematician in the way that you view the world, how you do the things in your life for the sake of the pursuit itself? I never thought about that, but yes, that I totally identify with that. So in building this, your startup and in starting Iterative now, you still identify with that? Yeah, because I think startups for a lot of ways is like the pursuit of this thing that was just like, how does this stuff work? Like, how do things, how does a group of people start with nothing and then end up with this like thing that they created? And then all these other people use it, like wild. And I don't know if people realize this, but startups, especially kind of like tech startups and stuff, have only been around for a short period of time. And it's the only time in human history that I can sit at this table with my computer. I can 
do this and build stuff for anybody on the planet. That's never been possible in human history. And to me, that's just like infinitely kind of like fascinating. Like it's the thing of our time to kind of like do, right? So I don't, I just was like so curious about just like how does that happen? What stuff do people like want to build and all of that? So yeah. Do you think you've always been curious? Like from yeah. when you were a kid, like deeply curious? Yeah, I, I mean, if there's anything that I care about, like if if I could put anything on my tombstone, there's like any defining characteristic about me, it's curiosity. If there's anything I want to be known for, it's that. What are you most curious about? Is it the why? Is it the how? Is it the... It's always the why. It's always the why. Every time, right? Even with people. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of interviews and calls first. I do a 30-minute call with all with candidates. And the entire 30-minute call is, why do you do the things that you do? Why did you take that last job? What kind of jobs do you want now and why? Why do you want to work at Iterative? Why this role? It's like, that's all. I just spend most of my time asking them about that. Do you still ask yourself why until now? Or you feel like yeah. from before you have the same clear why? Well, what's different now? No, I mean, so every startup cycle and, you know, founders will kind of know this. It's like, once you start something, you're like committed, you made that commitment, you need to kind of like work on that thing. But in between every startup, I will have some existential crisis where I'm like, is this what I want to do? And before I moved to Singapore, I traveled for a year completely by myself. I bought one-way tickets and I traveled by myself. I didn't actually see somebody I knew for an entire year. And, you know, one-way tickets everywhere. And part of that was trying to figure out if Suken, this startup person, was the person I actually wanted to be, or was it because, or was I continually being that person because people thought that's who I was? And that's where, like, what I had done before. Like, I had momentum going that way. And that you should keep doing that because that's what you were should keep doing before. That's interesting. And my plan for the year was kill all the momentum, which is like, sounds like a horrible career advice thing. But my plan was kill all the momentum, get away from people who think about me this way, get away from all of the like momentum of that. And I actually made a rule. I didn't answer emails. How about texts and calls from family, friends? Yeah, some family and friends and stuff. But like, I didn't take a single phone call about work. I didn't respond to any emails about work. I didn't do any of it for a year. Like I wanted to like shut it all down. And then at the end of it, I wanted to kind of see how I felt. Was this still something I wanted to do? And obviously the answer was yes, but I didn't want to do it in San Francisco anymore. How did you realize you didn't want to do it in San Francisco? Is it because you ended up in Asia at the end of your, your trip and then you realized, okay, this is the place? Um, no, not really. Uh, I think that I went back to San Francisco at the end of the trip and I almost had a visceral physical reaction to how much I did not want to be there. Did you know why? I can't say I really do. There's just been some parts of my life where it's just like, it's so obvious. I can't explain it. I don't even bother because I feel like I'm just rationalizing something I already kind of feel. But it's like, it was almost as obvious as like going outside and being like, the sun is warm. Like it was almost that obvious. So one of those natural things again, like when you were a kid, something natural. Yeah. Okay. Then how did you end up moving to Singapore? And what did you do when you, you came back? And how did that lead you to iterative? I know that yeah. you didn't exactly want to start an accelerator. <laughs> no, I didn't want to. No. All I knew is I wanted to move to Southeast Asia and Singapore seemed to kind of be the place. I didn't actually have any friends in Singapore. I don't have any family in Singapore. To this day, I still don't have any family in Singapore. I didn't have a job, nothing. I just moved. And I figured I would just kind of like start something there and figure it out. And I was working with some companies around Southeast Asia and, you know, for most of the time at work. And that was me getting experience in Indonesia and Thailand because I wanted to see what operating in Southeast Asia was like. And then iterative basically came about because I felt like founders in this ecosystem were not getting the support that I wanted them to have. And I was kind of used to coming from Silicon Valley. And to me, and this is my opinion, I'm not 
you know, I'm not trying to kind of throw shade on people. It's just my opinion. I think that that help needed to come from people who have started companies before. And I think that's kind of the best way for founders to develop. And lots of people have copied YC and I think they've missed two parts of it. They've like copied YC, but they like changed the two things that are like the most important parts of YC. One, there's no curriculum. There's no classes. There's no like three hour lectures on stuff, right? Yeah. It's office hours. People, YC helps you work on your startup, right? You don't sit in a YC class. Two, all the YC partners who you work with in the batch have started companies before, right? Yeah. And to me, I felt like a lot of the programs and a lot of the stuff in Southeast Asia failed on both of those accounts. And it just didn't seem like the right thing. And it seems like founders were getting led in the wrong direction for a lot of these cases. And the founders are really the ones at risk here, right? So like for you, Amanda, like you are foregoing a lot of other opportunities that you could be doing, right? You could be working at more lucrative jobs. I could be at school. (laughs) You could be in school. Your parents probably are kind of like, what is this thing you're doing? Your friends are working at kind of like more lucrative jobs and being like, why are you doing this thing? And here you are still, right? And I thought that some other programs and investors and stuff in Southeast Asia were giving people like you the wrong advice. And you don't know any better because it's the first time you're trying to do it. So you're figuring it out. You take their advice. Your company doesn't do well because of it. And then you just wasted three years of your life doing this. But oh, by the way, the program is fine. And that investor is fine, right? But it's just you who's affected. You're the one that has to take the brunt of that cost. And look, I don't know if all of my advice is fine. And I look, you know, maybe I'm in the same boat as them. That's totally possible, right? But at least we come from a place where it's like, I've been in your shoes before. And so I can like empathize with that. And then we try to align the incentives, right? So before I give you any advice, I give you money first. So at the very least, if I give you the wrong advice, by the way, you will always take more risk than me, right? So I'm not trying to say that this equals it out. But at the very least, I will lose money. Yeah. So I got skin in the game, which is how it should be. At least you're somehow incentivized to give the right advice and improve on it if it's not so good. (laughs) Right. And look, by the way, if Iterative ends up giving lots of bad advice and our companies don't do well, Iterative will die. And by the way, Iterative should die in those scenarios. We should not be in business if we give bad advice, right? Yeah. And I am totally okay with that. Now, I want to make sure that we give good advice and Iterative can kind of live. But like, if we end up giving bad advice and we don't survive, that's the right thing for it to have happened, right? And so I just think that that we need to kind of like rethink some of it. So anyway, we ended up with kind of Iterative because I just felt very strongly about how these programs were kind of being run and some of that. And so... I have this rule where I can only complain about something for so long. Otherwise, I need to shut up (laughs) or I need to do something about it. And I couldn't shut up. Okay. I think there are some good points there. I feel like when I was starting, I always wanted to look at things like, you know, YC's advice and all of the concrete, like step-by-step evidence and then pick among all of those myself because I didn't know like who would be giving the right advice or the wrong advice. And truthfully, I'm not in any accelerator programs, right? Because it's hard. It's hard to pick who the right person to guide you is. Yeah. And we actually tell this to our companies. As a founder, one of the skills you need to develop is what advice do you agree with and what advice do you not agree with? And we tell them very straight up, like, Amanda, let's say you are one of our companies. You are the one that has the taking the most risk. It is your company. It is not my company. So you should be the one that's making the decisions, right? Yeah. And we have nowhere in our paperwork, like if you're one of our companies, I can't tell you what to do. I have no clawback. I won't get my money back. I have no board seat. You don't have to actually listen to me, right? I've had some investors be like, are you sure you want to do that? And I'm like, 100%. Because I want it to be very clear. This is Amanda's company and Amanda makes the choices. And as part of that, you got to figure out what advice makes sense to you and what isn't, even if it comes from me. What has surprised you while building Iterative, either personally or on the work side? 
would have surprised me about running a VC fund, about the founders, about Southeast Asia. Anything. What maybe hit you the most? I think doing iterative really, really makes you think about startups more broadly. And then you have to be kind of specific. Here's what I mean. When we were running startups, I'm just kind of thinking about how to kind of make what we're doing kind of successful. I'm not thinking about what ingredients make founders successful because it doesn't matter. My ingredients are myself. So like, this is what I got. Uh, Yeah, I don't care what's going to make this other founder successful because I'm not them. I don't have their ingredients. So it doesn't matter. But now I kind of do. When you're a founder, you're not talking to lots of other founders and trying to decide whether you should invest. Before I got on this call, by the way, I think I looked at 80 applications today in the last like couple hours. How many do you go through a day? regularly right now at the end of the year on a typical week now less so but at the end of the year in crunch time i've been kind of like looking at quite a lot right so i mean we had like two or three hundred last week alone so we have the opportunity to kind of look at the breadth of people that are like starting startups and so you know what makes some founders kind of successful what makes them not what markets you know all that kind of stuff maybe the surprising thing that i can boil down for people here is it seems to me the set of reasons why a startup doesn't work is actually really big super big There's so many reasons why startups don't work, right? And they're all unique reasons. The number of reasons that startups succeed is actually really small. A startup will fail for lots of reasons, but it will succeed only for a few reasons. And you got to get those few reasons kind of like right. And at some point, I got to sit down and be like, okay, what are all those reasons? But I think about that from time to time, about like why it's like that. Has that sort of changed from like, let's say the first year until now, like with maybe the changing market conditions, the changing different things? Or you feel like it's the same things that you saw maybe in the US, the same things here? Same. No, we, we obviously pay attention to what's happening in the market and stuff because we need to be kind of like aware and thoughtful about it. But it doesn't change anything about kind of what we're doing now. And in fact, you know, we just raised a new fund and stuff. We are kind of like definitely accelerating our number of investments. And frankly, if other people don't want to invest as quickly, we're happy to kind of like hey, do okay. everybody's. Right. Yeah. So we're happy to kind of do that now. I think at the early stage that we invest in, the thing that we tell our founders, if you're in this like early stage, don't worry about it. Like the game is not different. Like you still need to be solving a problem that people have. You still need to kind of like solve it in some meaningful way. You still need to figure out who your customers are and you still need to figure out how to grow fast. None of that has changed. And if you're an early stage startup, you probably, I don't know, have 0.01% of the market. Even if that market shrinks by a half, still a lot of market for you, right? Yeah. You're so far away from saturating that worrying about the market kind of contracting like is silly. And I guess like before when you started Decide and now you have this big community, how does that feel for you? Because when you started in startups, you had nobody you knew who was working at a tech company, working at startups, but now you're literally building a community um, of people who are into startups, people around you. Do you feel like you're sort of building the people that were the community that you wanted to have? Yeah, absolutely. So when we started, we didn't really have much of a community. And then at some point, we kind of had our own community. So we had a lot of peers, right? NYC in San Francisco, we had these peer people. And that felt pretty nice, right? These are like people of our ilk. I think now at Iterative and talking to founders in Southeast Asia, they want community like I wanted community when I started. And to me, my job now is how do I give them that kind of community? Like, can I turn my network, and then also kind of like other founders, can we create a community by stuff of that? So I think about us as just like, can we seed that? And we've invested in now, I don't know, over the last two and a half years, it's like 130 founders or something like that. I've got to say the best part of my job, the part that makes me smile kind of like the most, and this is going to be so cliche, I'm like, sorry, I apologize. Founders will occasionally meet each other completely without us directing it at all. 
and then take a picture together and post it in our Slack. And it's the best. It's the best, right? And it's the best to me because I remember how meaningful it was to meet somebody else who kind of like was doing the thing that I did and felt very alone about. And that kind of like made all the difference. I like went home and worked harder and I like felt like I was part of this thing. And so whenever I get those photos in our Slack is kind of like, it's the best that we were able to kind of like facilitate this in some way. And, but it was like organic. Like I didn't tell these people to meet, right. They like reached out to each other, especially across batches too. That's so cool. But personally, do you feel like you found a community now? Because I, I think like a founder community for early stage founders is sort of different. But personally for you, after having moved around a lot, having worked in the US, worked here, do you feel like you found that community? Um, yes, but it's like different parts of life, right? So I have the community that I knew when I was in SF and, you know, you're still friends with them and that kind of stuff. And there was the community of people I went to college with. And so I think of it as like, I belong to a lot of different communities. I mean, even just like nationality wise, it's like, if I meet another American, it's like, okay, cool. We're like, you know, we sound the same and we can kind of talk about that. But when I meet other Malaysians and I'm in KL right now, it's like, there's a certain kind of like affinity there too, right? And doubly so if you're from Penang. I mean, if you're from Penang, it's like, we're best friends right now, you know? And so, yeah, I think it comes in different parts. And I think this iterative community to me is, I am a member of that community, right? I mean, yes, iterative is this like fun that I run and all this kind of stuff, but like, I'm a member in it kind of like no different than any other kind of like founder in it. And so I do think about it as they are my peers as a founder. Look, yes, I technically, I guess I'm an investor now, but like I still internally and my identity is as a founder. And so I think when I meet kind of like founders in our community, it's like a community of peers. And I just think of myself as one of those peers. And I guess to wrap up, I want to ask one question that I'm asking everybody Mm -hmm. that I speak with. It's outside of work, what's one thing, just one thing that you want to accomplish in your personal life? That can be something you want to accomplish this week, next month, next year, 10 years from now. Um, Okay, I told you about the math PhD thing, so I won't use the cop-out answer and kind of do that. Um, The other thing, I think it's the only thing on my bucket list, I want to go to outer space. And I'm completely serious. I'm not joking. Like the Jeff Bezos outer space, that kind of longer in space than that. No, I I just want to leave the planet Earth and be able to look back on the Earth from outer space. Okay. Yeah. When did you decide that? When I was quite young, I am I have a very strong affinity with space. And again, remember my my whole thing about adventure and whatever. And space just seems it's the grandest adventure, right? And sometimes I curse that I'm just live in this age where it's like space travel is not a thing yet. Cause I would love to live in a later age where space travel is a thing. Like the universe and everything outside of Earth is the biggest adventure the human race can kind of like ever get into. And so I'm limited by the technology of kind of like our time. And the best I think I can kind of do is at least I can kind of like look back on the earth from space, even if it's for like 30 seconds, right? So fortunately, I think the cost of that is going down, but that's something that I'm going to do kind of like before I die. It seems like it's going to happen sooner than later. So I hope you get to do that in your lifetime. (laughs) Uh, Oh, I will. I will. No qualms about that. Hey, well, thank you so much, Sukhan. It was so nice to speak with you. Thank you very much for having me, Amanda. 